Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to our continuing study in the epistles. And today we are going to do a walkthrough of the book of Revelation. This is our fourth lesson in the series on the book of Revelation. The first week we looked at an overview of what this book is and all of its unique characteristics. And for the past two sessions, we have looked at the four different views and the way the book of Revelation has been interpreted differently throughout the history of the church. So today we are going to take a walk through from chapter 1 through chapter 11 in the book of Revelation. And again, our goal is not to, to decode all of the mysteries or to tell you this is what everything means we're going to journey through the book to get an overall picture of what is happening in each of these chapters. And along the way, we'll be uh, talking about you know, how different views interpret some of these symbols and visions in the book of Revelation, as well as pointing back to Old Testament scriptures that are alluded to in the book of Revelation. So let's jump right into our outline and our overview of the first 11 chapters of Revelation. In the first eight verses of Revelation, this is what we call our prologue. This is kind of the introduction and greetings of the book. And we've looked at several aspects of the prologue before, but this is where, first of all, in the first three verses, the book of Revelation is introduced. And it's introduced as the revelation of Jesus, which God gave to him to show unto his servants the things that must soon take place. And he sent this to John the Apostle. And John the Apostle receives this vision and begins to write. There's also a beatitude here in verse number 3 of chapter 1. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. After the first three verses, we move into what is our more traditional greeting as far as epistles go. Remember, one of the genres of Revelation is it is an epistle. It is a letter that was written to seven literal churches. So here we see, beginning in verse 4, the characteristics of a traditional letter. John introduces himself as John, and then he gives the recipients to the seven churches that are in Asia. And then he begins to go into a little introductory praise unto Jesus Christ. It says, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits of God and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Notice how he describes Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And it goes on to say in this introductory prologue, Jesus who loves us, who freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So he gives this little introductory praise. Again, that is very common in letters. In verse 7 kind of sets up what's going to happen in the book. Verse number 7 says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. So it begins to set the stage that this book is about the one who is coming with the clouds and those that will behold him, even those that pierced him. So these are the first eight verses here in the book of Revelation being our prologue. 
Moving on from the prologue, we have the first section. And the first section is Christ among the seven churches. And John is standing here, and he hears a voice behind him. And the voice behind him in verse number 11 instructs him to write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And when John turns to see the voice behind him, he sees seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, he says, there is one like the Son of Man. And he describes this heavenly vision of Jesus. And this Jesus that he sees instructs him in verse number 17, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, the things that are, and the things that are to take place after this. And Jesus says, For the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So he sees this vision of Jesus in the midst of lampstands, and in his right hand there are seven stars. And as he sees the vision of the risen Savior, Jesus tells him what these symbols mean, that the seven golden lampstands are these seven churches that he is writing to, and in his right hand are seven stars. And the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, most commentators agree that the word angels here probably doesn't mean heavenly beings. The word angel, the very word simply means messenger. So these would be addressed to the messengers of the seven churches, perhaps those who would carry and read the letter aloud, or even the pastors of these seven churches. So we move from this first section here of the opening vision of Christ among the lampstands into chapters 2 and 3. And chapters 2 and 3 are the seven letters or the seven messages to the seven churches. Now if you're following along on our note sheet, on the back of that there is a handy chart. And this chart goes through the seven letters in the book of Revelation. And what you see about these letters in chapters 2 and 3 is that they all have a similar style. They all emphasize similar aspects. In each of these letters, there is a picture of Christ, a description of Christ. Secondly, there is a commendation from Christ to these churches. Most of these churches, with the exception of one, have good qualities about them. And Jesus is pointing out those good qualities. But also, many of these churches, with the exception of two, there's also a rebuke. Jesus would say, I have some things against you. So there's some things that Jesus was not pleased with in the churches that he is addressing. And then after the rebuke, there's an exhortation of ways that they can fix those things that are wrong. And after that, there is a promise to the overcomer. To those that overcome, there is a promise. So we're not going to go through all of these for the sake of time, but I will just take the first one, Ephesus. We'll take the first one, Ephesus. The description of Christ at the church of Ephesus in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, 
Christ holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's the description of Christ. The commendation is, he says, I know your deeds and your hard work and your perseverance and that they do not tolerate the wicked ones, wicked men. They endure hardship and they hate the practice of those who are called the Nicolaitans. So those are the things that were positive about the church. But the rebuke to the church at Ephesus was they had left their first love. And the exhortation was to remember from where you were fallen and repent and do the works that you did at the first. And then the promise to the overcomer to the church at Ephesus is he will eat from the tree of life. So in each of these letters, you will find the description of Christ the commendation of what they're doing right, the rebuke from what they're doing wrong, the exhortation on how to, to go back and fix what is wrong, and then the promise to those who overcome. And we see that with each of these letters. Moving from chapters 2 and 3, being the seven churches, into chapter 4, we now have a change of scenery. And the change of scenery, we move from what's going on in the churches on the earth and we are taken up into a heavenly vision, up into the very throne room of God. Now, the beginning of chapter 4 is where the futurist, especially those who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, this is where the futurists believe that the rapture of the church is mentioned in Revelation. They believe it's mentioned here in Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4 begins this way. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me was like a trumpet, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things that must take place after this. So what's happening here is John sees a door. He looks, obviously, into the spirit realm, and he sees a door open in heaven, and he hears a voice saying to him, and the voice is like a trumpet, and it says, Come up here. And I will show you things that must take place after this. And immediately John is taken up into the throne room of heaven to see this heavenly vision that's going to set the stage for the chapters that are going to happen after this. And as I mentioned, the futurists who believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, they believe that this verse is teaching a pre-tribulation rapture since it mentions a trumpet and it mentions the words come up here. Now granted, in the passage, we don't see the church being raptured, we see John, you know, being taken in a vision up into heaven to the throne room. But nevertheless, that is where your futurists say the rapture takes place. So what we see here in the book of Revelation chapter 4 in this heavenly picture, we see a, a picture of one who is seated on a throne. And obviously that one is the Father. And around the throne we have uh, several different uh, people and creatures that we need to talk about. The first thing that we see around the throne is we see 24 elders around the throne. Now, as with many of the signs and symbols, I'm going to say there's a lot of speculation about who this is or what this is because we are not told explicitly who or what they are. So around the throne with God sitting on it, there are 24 thrones and on the thrones 24 elders. Now, these could just be 24 random people up in heaven who are very important. Uh, they could be a picture of the church total. 
They could be a picture of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles uh, of the Lamb of Christ. Uh, we don't really know, but we know that there are these 24 elders in this vision around the throne. And then before the throne, there's also the seven spirits of God. And also with the seven spirits of God, there are four living creatures. And these four living creatures are full of eyes. One is like a lion. One is like an ox. One is the face of a man. And one is like an eagle. And they had six wings. And around the throne, they never ceased to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who is, who was, and who is to come. And when they say this, all of heaven in this picture of the throne room bows down to worship God, and the 24 elders throw their crowns and cast their crowns before the throne. This is certainly a powerful picture of, of heaven, but some of this is not unfamiliar to us because we see pictures in the Old Testament. The seven spirits of God are mentioned in Isaiah chapter 11. And on your study paper as well, in red, you will see many references. And most of these references are back to the Old Testament. And this is for you to take and to go back and study to find where a lot of these visions and uh, symbols are mentioned in other places in the Bible. The seven spirits of God are mentioned in Isaiah 11. And the four living creatures are mentioned in Ezekiel and also Isaiah. In Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 4 through 10, there comes in the midst of a fire, and the great cloud that comes is the likeness of four living creatures in Ezekiel chapter 1. And their likeness had four faces, the face of a human, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, and the face of an eagle, the same ones that we see here. Also, in Isaiah chapter 6, we see around the throne in the temple of God, we see seraphim having six wings. And you know what they cry around the throne of God in the temple? Holy, holy, holy. So these pictures, again, reflect back to the Old Testament. Now, chapter 4 sets up what's happening in chapter 5. So we see the worship in heaven, but when we come to chapter 5, here's where something important begins to happen. In chapter 5, verse 1, John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now this seven-sealed scroll, again, there's a lot of um, speculation about what this is. Uh, some of the futurists used to say that this was the title deed to the earth. Some of your preterists say that this is a scroll and a bill of divorcement that God was giving to Israel. But whatever the scroll is, it is definitely a scroll that contains judgments. Scroll that contains judgments. And just like with the scene in heaven with the angels, the seraphim, we also see that this scroll or a scroll has reference back to the Old Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 2, Ezekiel says, I looked and behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and a scroll of a book was written on it. It had written on the front and on the back, there was writing on the front and on the back, and there were written on it the words of lamentation, mourning, and woe. 
So as Ezekiel sees a hand that was stretched out, and in that hand was a scroll of a book. And the words written on the front and on the back, and these words were lamentation, mourning, and woe about judgments that were to come. So I believe that is a direct picture of what this scroll is, because this scroll with the seven seals, each seal represents a judgment. So he sees this seal, he sees this sealed scroll, and he asks, who is worthy to open the book? And he looked around and there's no one worthy to open the book. And he begins to weep because there is nobody there to open the book. And then one of the elders said, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy to open the book. So he turns to see the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he sees a lamb standing as it had been slain. So the picture of this lamb is obviously Jesus. This lamb was standing, it was alive, but yet it looked like it had been slain. How Christ was dead, but yet he is risen. But this lamb is more than a lamb. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he is worthy to open the book. And he is worthy to undo the seals. So as we move into from chapter 5, so chapter 4 and 5 are the heavenly vision. Chapter 6, we begin to see the breaking of the seven seals. The first four seals are broken, and the first four seals are what we would refer to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. For the first seal was a white horse who went forth to conquer. The second seal was a red horse to make war on the earth. The third seal was a black horse that brings famine. And the fourth Seal is the fourth horse that is a pale horse that brings death. Now, as with the heavenly vision, these we see horsemen in the Old Testament as well. In the book of Zechariah, chapter 1, Zechariah says, I saw in the night, and behold, a man was riding on a red horse, and standing among the myrtle trees, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Later on in Zechariah chapter 6, he said, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between the two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. And the first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth dappled horses, all of them strong. So we see from the vision in Isaiah, we see horses and horsemen just like we see here in chapter 6. And each of these seals and each of these horsemen bring devastation on the earth. The first one we see is one that is coming forth to conquer. He has a crown and he has a bow in his hand. Now there's a lot of speculation about who this rider on the white horse is. Uh, the majority view today is that the rider on the white horse is the Antichrist, who will come in the end of days to make war with the saints. Uh, those who hold to the historicist and the preterist view would possibly say that this is Christ himself. If you were to go back and read old commentators like Matthew Henry, he would identify the rider on the white horse with Christ. Well, we certainly see the imagery of God's judgment in, say, the book of Hosea, where you know, we see a, a horse and, and the rider with a, a bow on it. 
speaking of God coming in, in judgment upon Israel. So it's not out of the reach that this is Christ. Uh, so it could either be Christ or the futurist would say this is the Antichrist. But he's one going forth, conquering and to conquer, on a mission to conquer. And then we see war and famine and death. Those are the first four seals. The fifth seal, we see souls under the altar. As the fifth seal is open, John says, I saw under the altar souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had bore. So these are the martyrs. And this is a theme that we see running through the whole book of Revelation. The vindication of the martyrs. In fact, it seems that all of these judgments, all these seals and trumpets and bowls are poured out judgments for the vindication of these martyrs. Because they have been killed, they, their blood is being avenged. And that's what we see with the pouring out of the seals, trumpets and bowls and all the judgments that we see. Now, who are these souls under the altar? Well, if you are a futurist believer in Revelation, the souls under the altar are those who are killed during the time of tribulation and killed by the Antichrist. Those who would be of the preterist view believe that these souls under the altar are the same ones who Jesus speaks of in Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew 23, Jesus speaks to the scribes and the Pharisees, and He says, Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of you, or some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some of you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. He says, So that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. So the preterists would say that these judgments were coming to avenge the blood of all of the righteous ones who had suffered persecution for Christ, going back to Abel, all the way up to the prophets and the wise men and the scribes who would be killed and martyred, flogged in the synagogues, and persecuted in the first century. And they would say these judgments were judgments upon Jerusalem and Israel because they were the ones who were persecuting the righteous and had a history of persecuting the righteous. So you can see how the different views, some put these martyrs in the past, and the futurist view put these martyrs in the future. But what we see in the fifth seal is the martyrs crying out from under the altar. And here's what they're crying. O sovereign Lord, how long before you avenge our blood on the earth? And the response is that they must wait a little while longer until their brothers should be uh, complete. Their fellow servants and the number of their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves were killed. So the avenging of the blood of the martyrs is a major theme and probably the theme for the judgments in the book of Revelation. As we move to the sixth scroll, we see a frightening scene. We see a great earthquake. The sun becomes black as sackcloth and the moon like blood and the stars fall from heaven to earth and the fig, as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit is shaken by a gale and the sky is rolled up as a scroll and it vanishes away and every mountain and island removed. 
So we see a great time of trouble coming to the earth. So much so that the people on the earth call into the mountains and the rocks, say, fall on us. Hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand? So the sixth seal is the wrath of the Lamb that was coming. Probably the wrath that was coming in response to the blood or to the cry of the martyrs. Now this scene here that we find in the sixth seal, the sun became black, the moon became blood, the stars fall, the heavens rolled up like a scroll. That should not be taken literally. As we talked about in our introductory lesson, that is what is called apocalyptic literature. It's this end-of-the-world, cosmic-type language that's used to convey earthly judgments. You know, when one nation would come and make war and overtake another nation, or the judgments of God in the Old Testament. This is the symbolic language that was used. Let me share with you some examples. Isaiah 13, verse 10. For the stars of the heavens and their constellation will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Isaiah 34, 4. All the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies will roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as the leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from a fig tree. Almost a direct quotation here from Revelation chapter 6. Ezekiel chapter 32, 7 and 8 says, I will cover the heavens and make the stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud. The moon shall not give its light. I make dark over you. I put darkness over the land, declares the Lord God. Now, so the Old Testament uses this apocalyptic language of stars falling, sun being darkened, moon being darkened. But none of those things literally happened. It was symbolic language used of judgments that were coming from God on a nation. And that's what it mentions here. This is the day of the wrath of God. And who shall stand, which is almost a direct uh, quote from Malachi, from Malachi chapter 3 verse 2 that says, who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? So we see the sixth seal is the wrath of God. So the seals, we have the first seal, the white horse, the conqueror, the second seal, the red horse, war, the third seal, the black horse, famine, the fourth seal, the pale horse, death, the fifth seal, the souls under the altar that had been martyred and persecuted. And the sixth seal, the judgment of the wrath of the Lamb. So that's what we see, the seals in chapter 6. As we move into chapter 7, we take a brief interlude. So we have not picked up on the seventh seal yet, but in chapter 7 we see this interlude of the sealing of 144,000. So in chapter 7, John says he saw the angel holding back on the four corners of the earth, holding back the winds until they can seal the believers with the seal of the living God. The seal of the living God, it says in verse number 3, he says, until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. So we have 144,000, and again, that's probably a symbolic number. Not a literal number, as you know, some futurists may believe, or not a literal number, as maybe Jehovah's Witness, Witnesses believe in their theology. But 144,000 that are sealed on their foreheads with the seal of God. And this is for protection. Now this is, again, 
alludes back to the Old Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 9, Ezekiel says this, He called to the man clothed in linen, who had a writing case on his waist. And the Lord said to him, Pass through the city of Jerusalem. Judgment was coming to Jerusalem. Pass through the city and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over the abominations committed in Jerusalem. So he says to those that are mourning and lamenting over the abominations that are happening in the land, go through Jerusalem and put a mark on their foreheads. This is basically God saying, I'm marking those who are mine. I know who they are. And he begins to list here 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. Now the futurists believe that in the future, these are going to be literal Jewish Christians from every one of these tribes. Well, the question is, we have to figure out, you know, who are the tribes and who belongs to the tribes? We, they don't have tribes in Israel today. There are some that try to go back and find their tribe, but most of the tribes were scattered throughout all the nations and intermarried over all of the time. So, you know, it's not impossible with God, but it's almost humanly impossible today to find all of these pure tribes. So, your preterists would say that these are the remnant of Israel. These are the Jewish Christians in the first century who God saved and came to salvation. But we see the seal of God on their forehead. Now, if we fast forward it a little bit, we see these 144,000 come back up in chapter 14. In chapter 14, verse 1, it says, I looked and behold on Mount Zion, stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. So they come back up in Revelation 14. Now what's interesting about Revelation 14 is right before in Revelation 13 we have the beast, and we'll talk about him more next week. And the beast has those who receive the mark of the beast and the number of his name. So you see a contrast here between those who worship the beast and take his name and the number of his name and have a mark in their forehead or their, their right hand, and they worship the beast. And then you have those who worship God, who are the 144,000, who are sealed with the seal of God, with the mark of God, if you will, and with the name of God on their foreheads. And again, there's a lot of speculation about the mark of the beast. Now, I remember, you know, back when they put barcodes on everything, well, the barcode is the mark of the beast. and Everybody will have a barcode on their forehead, you know. And, and now the popular thing is the barcode is going to be a microchip, or they may put it in a vaccine, so you better watch out so you don't take the mark. You know, there's a lot of speculation, so we're not going to lend ourselves to speculation in this study. But what we will say is that Whatever the mark of the beast is, there's a mark, there's the number of his name, and it's for those who worship him. But on the contrast of that, there are those who worship God who are marked and sealed in their forehead and have the name of God on them. So if the mark of the beast is a microchip, is the mark of God a microchip in the, the heads or the hands of, of his 144,000? You know, it's just something to think about. You have two groups who are sealed with a seal and a mark in their foreheads and with the name of the one that they worship 
on them. So that's just a little taste for next week. But going back from in chapter 7, you have the 144,000. Then there's a great multitude, beginning in verse number 9. A great multitude that no man can number. And they're not just those out of Israel, but they are those from every nation and kindred and tribe and tongue, standing with white robes and worshiping God. And those are the ones who came out of the great tribulation. They came out of the great tribulation and had washed their robes white. And it says about them, that they shall hunger no more, thirst no more, the sun will not strike them, nor the scorching heat. For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne. He will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So we see this overcoming multitude from every tribe and kindred and nation and tongue. That was our interlude in chapter 7. Now as we pick back up in chapter 8, chapter 8 and 9 begin the, se- the seven trumpets. So just as we had seven seals, now we have the seven trumpets. In chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, the opening vision is the fire from the altar. There's fire taken from the altar and cast upon the earth. And then what we're going to see are seven trumpets. Now these trumpets, just as we took the images of the seals from Zechariah and Ezekiel and Isaiah. Many of these trumpets reflect back and recall the Egyptian plagues. The Egyptian plagues. In fact, out of the ten Egyptian plagues, there is eight that are alluded to here in the book of Revelation. Those would be water to blood. There was a plague of frogs. In Revelation 16, we see three unclean frogs. We see pestilence, boils, hell, locust, and darkness. And then in Egypt, we have the death of the firstborn. In Revelation 9, we have the death of a third of the people by the angel of death. So notice when you read through the trumpets that you see these pictures of the Exodus. So the first trumpet is hell and fire and blood that was cast upon the earth that brings destruction to the uh, earth and to a third of the plants that are destroyed. The second trumpet, we have a third of the sea that turns into blood. There's a fiery mountain that is thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea becomes blood. The third trumpet is one-third of the rivers are made bitter. The stars fall on a third of the rivers, and they are made bitter. The fourth trumpet, one-third of the sun and the moon and the stars are smitten. So we see uh, these judgments fall upon the earth. They're upon the, the plants, they're upon the rivers, they're upon the fresh water, they're upon the, the heavenly uh, bodies. So we see these judgments coming. And the interesting fact about those is that they affect one-third of the earth. They affect one-third of the earth. Now, why do they affect one-third of the earth? Well, that is, you know, speculated in many different ways of why. One-third could be that it is only a partial judgment, that is not a complete judgment. Also, one-third we find, again, mentioned back in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel chapter 5, we see Ezekiel being told, Son of man, take up a sharp sword, use it as a barber's razor, and pass over your head. 
A third part you shall burn in the fire. A third part you shall take and strike with a sword. A third part you shall scatter. A third part of you shall die of pestilence. A third part shall fall by the sword. A third part I will scatter. So in Ezekiel 5, we see a third part, a third part, a third part. So we see the same thing here in Revelation echoing back to Ezekiel. So we have on your paper, again, all of the Old Testament references for the trumpets. So the first trumpet, we can go back to Isaiah and Exodus. Uh, the second trumpet, Jeremiah. The third trumpet, Exodus and Jeremiah. Uh, the fourth trumpet, Exodus. So go back to these uh, scriptures and go back and look in the Old Testament on these trumpets. So with these trumpets, we see the plants destroy, the sea turn to blood, uh, the waters made bitter, and the sun, moon, and the stars smitten. And then in chapter 8, verse 13, we have another interlude, and the interlude introduces the three woes. Then moving into chapter 9, we have two more visions, the fifth trumpet and the sixth trumpet. Now, things are not weird to you by now. Things are really starting to get weird here in chapter 9. For what we see in chapter 9 is we see this locust army coming out of the bottomless pit. So we see somewhere that this star falls from heaven and has the key to a bottomless pit, to an abyss. And he opens the abyss and smoke rises and out of the smoke locusts come out on the earth. And these locusts are unlike any other locusts. They were given power like scorpions. Uh, they were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of gold. Their faces were human faces. Their hair were like women. Their teeth are like lions. The uh, breastplates are of iron. Their noise are like wings of many chariots. Uh, the horses running into battle, they have tails and stings like scorpions. And then they have a king over them whose uh, name is Abaddon in Hebrew or Apollyon in Greek. And they harm the people. They do not kill the people, but they harm the people for five months. So this is a really weird scene. We don't see you know, anything uh, like this in our world today. So, of course, your futurists believe that this is literal, that literally one day there's going to be a bottomless pit open in the earth and you know, these locusts are going to come. Some take it really literal. Some futurists uh, see this as, you know, an army. They don't take it as literal as, you know, others do. But they see it as an army that is coming upon the world uh, because they take the noise like the wings of like helicopters and, you know, striking tails as like missiles coming out and all of these things. So picture of an army coming in the future. Um, some people interpret this, your idealists would probably interpret, uh, interpret this as demonic forces and spirits that are unleashed against God's people. And your preterists would probably see this as the Roman army that was coming into Jerusalem. Now, for an Old Testament picture of these locusts, you can go back to the book of Joel. For Joel sees a mighty army coming, and he equates that with locusts. Cutting locusts, swarming locusts, hopping locusts, and destroying locusts. And Joel says in Joel 1 that this is a nation that has come up against our land, which will be a day of darkness and gloom. He says in chapter 2, their appearance is like the appearance of horses, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. 
So this is probably a picture of some type of an army that is coming or came in the issue of the preterist. And then leaving these locusts, now you have a 200 million horsemen army in verses 13 through 21 of chapter 9. A 200 million horsemen army. Now he says in verse 13, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So now there are, in this vision, angels bound in the river Euphrates. You won't find me scuba diving there. And then there's a 200 million man army that are mounted on horses that uh, by these plagues, a third of mankind is killed by the fire, smoke, and sulfur coming out of their mouth. So there's, again, a lot of speculation. Uh, The futurists believe that this is a 200 million, literal 200 million man army that's coming from China who will march across the Euphrates River to uh, Israel. Again, your preterists would probably see this as, again, another picture of the Roman army that was coming to conquer. But whatever's happening here in chapter 9 between the locust army and the 200 million man army, I believe here's the point. In chapter 20, I mean in verse number 20 of chapter 9, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works. So think about all of the seals and the war and the famine and the death. Think about all the trumpets that affect all parts of the earth. Think about these armies, these mysterious armies that are coming up. But it says they did not repent of their works. They did not repent. And I believe that's the point that we get from all these symbols and pictures. The point is, even with these judgments being poured out, people hardened their hearts and did not repent. Symbolic of Pharaoh. I said these trumpets have a a picture back to the Exodus. How even when Pharaoh saw the judgments of God, he hardened his heart and did not repent. The same is going on here. So that concludes chapter 9. I hope you're staying with me here. As we go through chapters 10 and 11, we will very quickly outline those on our paper. This is section 4, chapters 10 through 13, but we'll just cover through 11. The vision is the messenger with the little book. So now we see this mighty angel. And the mighty angel is standing straddling the sea and the land. And the sea and the land in prophetic uh, pictures is usually a picture of the land symbolic of Israel and the sea symbolic of Gentile nations. So we see a mighty angel. And this mighty angel really has the description of the angel of the Lord. He's not just a normal angel in chapter 10. So this mighty angel has his foot on the land and the sea. And then there are seven thunders. Seven thunders. But yet, we don't know what these thunders are. For John is told to seal up the seven thunders, and do not write down what these seven thunders are. And the message here from this angel is there is no more delay. If you remember, the martyrs said, how long? And he said, wait a little while longer. Now he says there is no more delay, but that in the day of the trumpet call, To be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. Just as he announced to his servants, 
the prophet. So what is the mystery of God? Some futurists may say that the mystery of God here, because it is preceded by a trumpet, is the rapture of the church. But on the other hand, we've seen the rapture of the church by the futurist view in chapter 4. Uh, the mystery of God could also elude, and I think it's very possible here, because the picture is on the land and the sea, this angel is standing, Jews and Gentiles. Well, the mystery, there's a mystery that Paul talks about. And the mystery that Paul talks about is that Gentiles would now be included in the good news of the gospel. And Gentiles now can become the people of God, fellow heirs of the covenants and of the promises with Israel. So John is now given this little book. Little book. And he takes the scroll from the one who's standing and he's told to eat the book. And he eats the book and in his mouth it is sweet as honey but in his belly it becomes bitter so he eats this book now this book again echoes back to ezekiel ezekiel chapter 3 ezekiel says son of man eat this scroll and go and speak to the house of israel so i opened my mouth and he gave me a scroll to eat and he said son of man feed your belly with the scroll i give you he says, and I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. So again, we're not told what this little book is, but we know that when he eats the little book, it's sweet to his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. And he says, you must go and prophesy to many peoples, nations, and languages, and kings. You must go to many people. You must go basically to the Gentiles. You know, this could possibly allude simply to the preaching of the gospel. The little scroll here could be the Gospels. It could be the message of Jesus Christ. For the message of Jesus, who is standing between the sea and the land, Jews and Gentiles, he's telling him now to take the book and swallow it and go out and preach and prophesy to the kings and the nations and the earth. So he goes out and prophesied to the kings and the nations of the earth. And if you think about it, the Gospel is sweet but also bitter. To people who receive the gospel, it is sweet for it leads to life. To people who reject the gospel, it is bitter because there's no other way to salvation. And certainly for, you know, in the, in, the old, in the New Testament, we see this, that Jesus comes presenting the good news. And even in Israel, there are those that receive the good news and they enter the kingdom. There are those that reject the good news and judgment comes to them. So there's a bitter and a sweet side to the gospel as well, depending on if you receive it or reject it. So this could possibly be a picture of the preaching of the gospel to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles. As we go into chapter 11, we see that John is told to measure the temple of God. Measure the temple of God. The temple of God is also a picture of the church. It's a picture of Jew and Gentile, Ephesians chapter 2. Jew and Gentile together, he has a foot on the land and the sea, come together as one people of God and are built up a spiritual house. So he's told to measure the temple of God. And this is why many preterists believe that the book of Revelation was written before AD 70. Because if there was no temple for John to go and measure in Jerusalem, if it had already been destroyed, then why would God tell him to measure a temple that is not there. But John goes and he measures the temple. And then, after he measures the temple, there are two witnesses. 
who have authority to prophesy for three and a half years, 1260 days. And these two witnesses are described as two olive trees. And it says, if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouth and consumes their foes. They have the power to shut the sky. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague. Now, there's a lot of speculation about who these two witnesses are. If you're a futurist, you believe that these two witnesses are two literal people, two literal men who will come in the future, possibly two Old Testament figures who will show up in the future. Maybe Moses and Elijah, because they have the characteristics of Moses and Elijah. Some futurists say this is Enoch and Elijah, because Enoch and Elijah were the only two men in the Old Testament who did not see physical death. And they believe every person has to die, so God's going to send back literally Enoch and Elijah to be the two witnesses. In the idealist view, in the preterist view, these are not taken as literal two men, Uh, They are either symbolic of the church as a whole, who has the power to go out and witness. Uh, Some believe that the witnesses here is the witness of the law and the prophets to Jesus, because Moses certainly represents the law. Elijah certainly represents the prophets. So they believe that this is the witness of the law and the prophets, the Old Testament witness of Jesus Christ. But what we see here, we see that the beast rises from the bottomless pit. Now we have a beast coming out of the bottomless pit and he makes war on the witnesses and he conquers them and they die. And it says their bodies lay in the street of the great city. And we'll see the great city next week. But this great city is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. So this great city is identified as Jerusalem. So these witnesses are killed in Jerusalem And people are rejoicing because they are killed, but yet after three and a half days, God raises them up. And when God raises them up, they stand on their feet, and great fear falls on the people. And he hears a voice saying, come up here, and they went up to heaven in a cloud. So this is almost a picture of what happened to Jesus. And Jesus goes, and his ministry is a ministry of three and a half years. And certainly the Old Testament witnesses, the Old Testament witnesses of Jesus, the Law and the Prophets, He came to fulfill the Law and the Prophets. Jesus was put to death, and after three days, He rises from the dead, and He ascends into heaven. So these witnesses have a similar picture and experience. But it's interesting also to note what happens at the end of this chapter. In verse number 13, it says, There was a great earthquake, and 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were terrified... And the rest gave glory to God. They gave glory to God. You remember what happened at the end of chapter 9? You've got the plagues, you've got the trumpets, you've got the locust army and a 200 million man army pouring out judgments and they did not repent. But yet through what is the witness and the preaching of the gospel, you have the people giving glory unto God. So I think there's a parallel there between those two, between judgment where people didn't repent, but yet the preaching of the gospel when they did repent. And then at the end of this, we see the seventh angel blow his trumpet. And the seventh angel blows his trumpet, and there's a great announcement. 
The kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. And then we see in verse number 19, God's temple in heaven was opened. And the Ark of the Covenant was seen within the temple. So the beginning of chapter 11, He measures the temple. At the end of chapter 11, the temple of God in heaven is open as we see the kingdoms of the world become the kingdoms of our God and He rules forever and ever. So that's the look at the first 11 chapters of the book of Revelation. So while there's definitely a lot of speculation on the details, I hope you can see a full picture of what is happening. That judgment is coming on the earth For those who persecute and martyr God's people, God seals those who are His during the time of of tribulation. Those who are martyred rejoice before the throne. We see these judgments being poured out that people don't repent, but yet we see the gospel being preached as a witness to Jesus. And people rejoice. And they give glory to God. And at the end here, we see the kingdoms of the world become the kingdoms of God of our God. So this seems like we're at the end of the story. And that's why many people believe these seals and trumpets and bowls aren't linear and chronological, but yet they're cyclical. They, they tell the same story uh, from different perspectives. So we'll talk about that more next week. But next week, we're not done yet. We still have a lot more to talk about as we talk about the beasts, as we talk about uh, the harlot city, as we talk about the bold judgments and then the coming of Christ and the new Jerusalem. So there's a lot more that we have to talk about. So take the notes, go back to the Old Testament, read some of these references. We didn't cover them all. We didn't read all the scriptures. We don't have time for that. But we encourage you to go back this week, freshen up on that. Hopefully you can get a picture of what's going on. I know there's a lot of confusion in the details, but let's see the overall picture. And I think we're even left today with the overall picture that Jesus is victorious.